Planet Out oat milk is so rich and creamy. I love it in my cereal, but also in smoothies. With zero grams of sugar in Planet Out unsweetened varieties. But it gets even better. It's an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D that's delicious in everything. Mmm, including my lattes. Pick up the carton that has it all. Or visit planetout.com for more. Planet Oat. Be good to you. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Yes, indeed, and uh, here to say happy Thursday to you. It is the seventh day of April, and as we um, sort of meander our way through the next couple of hours, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Always a privilege to be with you. We've got um, Church of the Week Pastor of the Week coming up tonight at 7 o'clock, 7, make that 6, so uh, you'll want to stay with us for that conversation. And uh, meanwhile, a lot to talk about, so let's get down to cases. I want to begin with an example, something I think that we'll all find hopefully uh, relatable. Um, We've all had a moment uh, as we are in the kitchen whipping up uh, a meal and accidentally touch the burner. And of course, immediately the reaction is you suddenly draw your hand back. And as much as in that moment, it may hurt, it may smart. It's actually a very clever protection system that God has designed so that when our nerves perceive heat and there is potential damage happening to our flesh, our reaction is to immediately withdraw. It's a warning sign that something not good is happening. If we didn't have that reaction, imagine leaning on a hot stove, having no sensation whatsoever. You could do pretty severe damage to yourself, couldn't you? So while we look at the pain reaction as something that is unwanted, unpleasant, it is nevertheless very necessary. That example, I think, will help set us up for the conversation we're going to have with our first guest tonight. He is lead pastor at Journey of Faith down in Southern California and has written a new book and one that, boy, this topic is something that is affecting more and more lives, particularly in the heightened impact of things like COVID-19 and all that's going on in the world around us. Jason Kusick has written The Anxiety Field Guide, Healthy Habits for Long-Term Healing, newly released by InterVarsity Press. And Pastor Kusick, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. Thanks so much, Greg. Great to be on the on the call with you. In, uh, in looking through your book, it, it just struck me that, and I've never really thought of it in these terms, but it struck me that, you know, there's fashions in which anxiety suffers or, or, or provides, rather, the same sort of benefits, so to speak, as our pain reaction does in touching the stove. And that is that, that sense of, well, there's, there's something here that may be a potential threat that could be potential danger that we need to react to. And so anxiety, I guess, isn't always necessarily a bad thing. It's how much we allow it to eventually control our lives when it suddenly shifts from warning us to then controlling us. Tell me a bit about your own life experience and why you felt it was important to write a book like this on this particular topic. Well, thanks so much. I think I've dealt with anxiety my whole life. I just didn't realize that I grew up in a home with a mom who was 
very organized and very neat, but she carried a lot of fears with her. She had a lot of anxiety, and I think I either caught that by just being born from her or was indirectly taught that. Um, I, there's some things I have, I'm a good risk taker on. I, I speak publicly uh, to large groups of people all the time. Uh, I'm an entertainer type. I love making jokes and being in a large group. But I also have a lot of anxieties, some things that really kind of paralyze me. I didn't notice it that much, but when I actually stepped into this role about six years ago, um, I started having panic attacks. I had insomnia. I had days where I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning. Um, I was having just obsessive thinking. And I ended up going to a counselor and started understanding more about this idea of anxiety. Exactly what you said there when you were describing the stove, there is good anxiety or what we could call good fear. The Bible tells us to fear God. Um, we, we should fear uh, a stove that's burning uh, and our hands going near it. We should fear being in a boat in the middle of a storm. But there's also bad anxiety, like not wanting to even go into the kitchen for fear that the stove might burn us, or being so anxious about water that you never get the joy of swimming. So I think the, the example you gave is, is, is great. God's kind of wired our brain. We have this area of the brain called the amygdala that kind of lights up when we're afraid. The problem is, is sometimes we're, that we're afraid and then the fear doesn't go away. And sometimes for some of us, we have fear and there's actually nothing to be afraid of. The good news is that we can kind of retrain our brains. If our brains have learned wrong or we have become anxious, we can actually start doing things differently. And anxiety is one of these things right now that's so incredibly treatable. Um, there's so much great information out there that we understand now. So we don't have to be controlled by it anymore. And that really is the key. You know, as we indicated, there are ways in which that sort of flight-fight reaction to circumstances can be very important, very healthy, um, can set in place certain mechanisms that will allow ourselves to uh, to respond appropriately. I mean, much like the adrenaline rush when, when you get that that sense of fear over something. Um, and, and if it leads you to an appropriate response that then can reduce the possibility of putting yourself in further harm's way, well, that's a good thing. It's when it begins to start to overwhelm you and control you or when it shifts, as you suggest, Pastor Kuzik, in, into an arena where it is completely unwarranted and triggered by things that don't seem to react uh, or, or relate, rather. Uh, and, and maybe you can share an example or two of what that looks like so people can understand more about the insidious way in which anxiety can sneak up on us and have it really not based in any true warning system. It's, you know, it's the equivalent of I'm, I'm getting the pain signal when I'm touching the stove, but wait a minute, the stove is turned off. How can this be? Are there ways in which anxiety can kind of trick our minds and, and, and tr trick our, our, our reactions as well? 
Yeah, I think some examples, um, probably there's a few areas where anxiety tends to show itself most. One of them is, like, let's say with regard to money. We all have anxiety about whether we have enough money, whether we have security about money. Uh, we can be kind of ruminating on that. Some of us might even fear whether or not we have enough money, and we're so afraid of it that we won't even check our bank account. We'll just start spending. Oh, I just can't bear to look if there's enough money in the account. Um, sometimes we have anxiety about relationships. Oh, I wonder if this person likes me or not. Oh, I, I, I imagine they don't like me, but I can't bring myself to ask that person how we're doing, so maybe I avoid the relationship. Or I don't want to have difficult conversations with people because I'm uncomfortable with what those are. Um, health can be a big one. I think a lot of the health problems that we have in our country are because people are anxious. Oh, I'm, I'm afraid I might have the heart condition my dad had. I just can't bring myself to go to a doctor. Um, those kinds of things are, you know, either we learned it or over time we become so anxious that we can't push through and it becomes debilitating. And the difficulty is that anxiety grows through avoidance. So the more we avoid what makes us anxious, it's like our brain learns to be more afraid. Mm. And so we go, oh, I, 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 I'm really afraid of doing this. I mean, to objectify it or personify our brain, it's like when you say I'm afraid to do something, your brain goes, oh, we're going to be afraid of that? Oh, okay, I can help with that. I'll increase your heart rate. Oh, I'll, I'll make you start sweating. And then the more anxious we get, the more our brain learns. Now, of course, we can retrain our brain. And retraining our brain means we do some of the things that make us anxious. And over time, our brain goes, oh, are we, are we not anxious about that anymore? Oh, well, then I won't get as upset. I won't get as nervous about it anymore. And see, that's the real key there, because oftentimes I think people that suffer from anxiety, after a while, they can no longer differentiate between the times when the stove is indeed really hot and we should quickly withdraw our hands so that we don't badly burn ourselves, and times when, well, in reality, the stove is turned off and it can't do any harm to us. And People, I think, over time confuse the two, and, and, and I'm fascinated by this notion, as you're suggesting, that we essentially sort of train our brain in that direction for that kind of reaction. So now, if we ever had an experience of, again, using my analogy as a child, burning ourselves on the stove, all of a sudden we wind up developing a very unrealistic, not grounded in, in, in any form of reality Flight, fight response to circumstances that may be completely unwarranted, and as a result, we panic now. We don't want to co cook because we remember that one time 30 years ago when, as a child, we burnt right. ourselves on the stove. Yeah, and not only that, I mean, what we know, I mean, I, as, a, as a Christian pastor, I, I really believe what that psalm says in Psalm 139 where it says we are we are fearfully and wonderfully made, or as one translation says, I'm, I'm made marvelously complex. Um, so a lot of this stuff is not really happening in our mental processing. You know, like when you, when you go to the stove and you put your hand in the fire and you're, you feel the heat, you don't say, oh, 
brain, increase heart rate now. Oh, brain, pull arm back from stove. Adre- renal glands begin producing adrenaline. You don't, you don't do any of that. It just happens. You know that. You walk into a dark room, and if somebody's in the dark room and they scare you, you don't have to tell your body to react. We are made so wonderfully. Even if somebody threw something at your face, your eyes would blink before it hit you. And that's not because you told yourself to blink. Your body's just designed to do that. Mm. Same thing. Once our body starts learning how to be anxious, it's kind of doing it on its own. So So, what we're doing is we're intentionally stepping in and we're saying, you know what? Maybe my mind is different than my brain. You know, maybe I can begin taking my thoughts captive. Maybe I can begin stopping some of these automatic cycles that are happening in my brain and my body. And like you said, kind of take control back of my life again, or kind of retrain my mind. Retrain the brain, exactly. And, And I'm glad that you point out, because we are called to take every thought captive and to put on the mind of Christ. Some people, though, I think struggle with that and don't realize that many of these past experiences and the cumulative effect of them do train the brain for that automatic, you know, without thinking. I mean, it's like breathing. Who stops and says, oh, wait, I need to take another breath? No, we don't. Our mind handles all of that processing and allows us to do it naturally. And that flight, fight reaction related to anxiety, very much the same thing. So if we can pick up the bad habits, if we can, if we can train the brain in a fashion that is inappropriate responses to moments that create anxiety, therefore we ought to be able to retrain the brain. And when I come back, We want to dig down a bit deeper with Pastor John Cusick on that very topic. Often people who suffer from anxiety say, if I could only stop the thoughts, if I could only turn it off. Can we? And if so, how so? Today, a look at the Anxiety Field Guide, Healthy Habits for Long-Term Healing, newly published by InterVarsity Press. Its author with me today, lead pastor at Journey of Faith in Southern California, Pastor Jason Cusick. We'll take a brief time out back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. It's a look at the Anxiety Field Guide, Healthy Habits for Long-Term Healing, a new book written by Our guest this evening, lead pastor at Journey of Faith in Southern California, Pastor Jason Cusick, who writes out of his own experience in helping to sort of pull back the curtain on the issue of anxiety and most importantly, how to respond to all of this. And that notion, as you suggested, Pastor, just before the break of the necessity to retrain one's brain, I think is important to understand that there is an aspect of this that is that that by rote sort of, you know, subconscious response mechanism that, as I suggest, like breathing, happens without us thinking about it. And I guess to that degree, oftentimes this unrealistic anxiety reaction to circumstances that we find distasteful or uncomfortable is also very automatic. But how do we go about the process of renewing our mind in such a fashion so that we can take every thought captive and take better control over the inappropriate ways in which we allow anxiety to control us? Yeah, great question, Craig. I think uh, the first step is maybe just even some normalizing that every, like we talked about earlier, everybody has anxiety. Everybody deals with anxiety. And some of us have anxiety 
about things maybe we don't need that much anxiety about, or sometimes anxiety has kind of gotten out of control. So I think the first step is is maybe normalizing it a bit. There's a lot of shame associated with anxiety. Um, when we feel anxious, we go, I shouldn't feel this way. This is wrong. We might even be in circles with Christians or religious people who would say that's a sin. Sin is a wor- worry is a sin. Anxiety is a sin. Uh, the Bible says don't worry. So, um, but if we're, we're dealing with it or we have loved ones dealing with it, I think the first thing is to be gracious and to accept, okay, there's something going on that is limiting my ability to live the full life that God's called me to live. Okay, that's okay. Now I want to do something about it. I want to make some changes. I think the second step is the, the, the primary treatment method for anxiety is what's called exposure therapy. And that's where slowly and graciously and systematically you begin exposing yourself to the things that make you anxious. And that's the process where you start retraining the brain. Now, for those who are listening who have anxiety, they're probably having a panic attack right now because those of us with anxiety, if it makes us anxious, we avoid it. Um, But the way to actually get better is to begin engaging it. So, for example, you have a fear of elevators. The first step is you acknowledge you have a fear of elevators. The next step is you think about what it would like, what it would be like to be in an elevator. And then you get anxious about it, and then you have some tools and some resources to kind of calm yourself down, and then you do it again, and you do it again. At some point, you go stand in front of an elevator for a while and watch people get in and out, and you get anxious and stressful, but then you kind of talk to yourself down. What you're doing is beginning to get your brain to be less sensitive to the stimulus. And then at some point, you get in the elevator. And it's that slow, gracious process of beginning to acclimate to the things that make us anxious. Again, anxiety grows through avoidance, but it's exposing ourselves to what makes us anxious and then developing some simple skills to to talk ourselves down, to remind ourselves that we're okay. Those are the things that can help us retrain and face anxiety so we're not controlled by it. And that's so critically important because, as we said in the beginning, there are ways in which anxiety can be a friend. It is a very natural mechanism that that is used in, in response to sets of circumstances. Um, it's when it's allowed to get out of control when it does no no longer matches the level of, of potential th- threat to us, doesn't match the response of our anxiety, um, and, and when it starts to overcome us and overwhelm us, that's when we need to confront this. And essentially what you're saying, Pastor, is it, it's, it's a matter of face your fears, isn't it? Yeah, that's exactly right, Craig. I mean, that's the thing that, that scares us the most, but we have to learn over time, graciously, patiently, to not be afraid of fear. Fear is a, a gift, and it's a, it's that alarm in our brain, but sometimes the alarm's going off and there's no fire. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our brain is essentially crying wolf when there is no wolf at the door. And, and I'm wondering exactly. from your perspective, how important is it to immerse ourselves in, in Scripture, 
um, just along the lines of, you know, I'm reminded of the passage of Scripture where we're reminded that perfect love casts out all fear. And, of course, perfect love, representative of Christ's work on the cross on our behalf. In that process of retraining the brain and, and pondering on good things of the Word, is that an important key to this overall process? Yeah, I think um, Philippians 4 really gives us this beautiful picture of where we have things that we're able to focus on. And uh, Paul, this amazing spiritual leader in the first century, says, whatever is true, whatever is good, whatever is holy, whatever is praiseworthy, think about these things, or meditate or muse on these things. Uh, Anxiety often feeds off of worst-case scenarios. Now, it doesn't mean we should ignore worst-case scenarios. For some of us with anxiety, we need to think about, okay, what could the worst thing happen? Let me actually, instead of avoiding this anxious thought, let me actually think it all the way through. But anxiety sometimes pops up on the side of our lives to kind of distract us. Uh, There's a great book called Freedom from Anxious Thoughts and Feelings by Scott Symington, and he talks about this idea of, anxious thoughts and feelings on a, on a side screen next to us. But God wants us focused on the front screen. And so we can look over, we need to acknowledge anxiety, even irrational anxiety. These anxious thoughts and feelings that just pop into our brain. We're not responsible for every thought and feeling that pops into our brain. I mean, most of our dreams are things that are just showing up that we didn't choose to be there. We're always going to have thoughts and feelings that pop into our mind that we're not morally responsible for, um, but pops up. And then we need to say, okay, don't panic. That's an interesting thought that I just had. Hmm, I don't want to have that thought. Let me focus on this thought over here. Let me focus on this good thing. So not only does Scripture give us a great direction to point at, but also, and I find this really helpful, Scripture also gives us examples of spiritual giants who dealt with anxiety. I mean, we have the prophet Elijah sitting in a, in a cave asking God to take his life, as he's probably having some kind of PTSD experience. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Jesus. We have Jesus on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane saying, I'm overwhelmed to the point of death. I mean, we have these stories in Scripture, not just people who did it right, in fact, the majority of examples in Scripture are people who didn't do it right, Um, but people who God was with them in the valley of the shadow of darkness. And I think that's the assurance that I get from Scripture, is that Scripture and prayer and my relationship with God are not a way to extinguish my bad feelings. They're a way for me to experience God and live my life, even if those anxious feelings stay there. Well, and you know what's so ideal about that is that we're also told to to hold every thought captive. It doesn't say to eliminate every thought, but to to hold them captive, to control them. And much of this book does just that, giving you insights in terms of what your anxiety response is how it functions, and most importantly, how you can take control back. 
A look at the Anxiety Field Guide, Healthy Habits for Long-Term Healing, newly released by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it to usual suspects through Amazon.com or through Pastor Kosick's website at journeyoffaith.com. That's journeyoffaith.com. We appreciate so much Pastor Jason Kusick for being with us on this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the conversation. Well, as we are all painfully aware, COVID-19 has impacted so many aspects, so many parts of our lives, and and perhaps uh, it will continue to have a lasting impact for years to come. One arena where that certainly is true has little to do with health and more to do with geography. In specific, at the peak of this, when we were experiencing all the shutdowns and people were working from home, I think a lot of folks, particularly those in states like California, come came to the realization that, wow, if I can, if I can just do my job remotely somewhere else other than in California, that's a sacrifice I'm willing to make. Because at the end of the day, there is so much about the policies of a state like ours, the taxes of a state like ours, the overcrowding of our state like ours that some people do come to the conclusion, just ask any California-born native, that maybe, just maybe, packing up and heading elsewhere doesn't look so bad after all. But in reality, this so-called escape from states like California and New York, how significant was it? Well, with some insights, we're joined now the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and also the Senior Fellow of the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University, Pete Peterson. Pete, it's always good to have you with us. Great to be back with you, Craig. And, you know, it's it's interesting because if you talk to um, folks that have lived in California and called this state home for long periods of time, we've all, I think, um, had a growing frustration with many of the policies that come out of our state legislature, approved by the governor, with the cost of living, with the tax rate, with uh, just about everything that you can find to complain about. You probably <laughs> find legitimate beef in a state like California. But as much as we talked about wanting to move elsewhere, and even to states like Nevada and um, Texas ran ads trying to um, attract or lure businesses to relocate, looking at lower corporate taxes, things of this sort, I don't think we ever really, in in, in great degrees, decided, yep, we're actually going to drive the for sale sign into the front lawn, sell the place, sell all those expensive two-by-fours and move somewhere else. But COVID did just that. Tell us more. Well, you know, Craig, the first time I saw this, just to tell a quick anecdote, uh, was uh, right within the first six months of the lockdown, uh, my family and I were living in Santa Monica, uh, the People's Republic, as you may know. Uh, And one of our neighbors was talking about the fact that in her kids' school, several of the parents uh, who were living in Santa Monica with kids in the school, uh, when given the opportunity to work remotely, and they were in entertainment-related businesses, had moved out. And in particular, three kids with, obviously, parents living in Santa Monica in one of her kids' uh, elementary school grades. Uh, one had moved to Oregon, uh, one had moved to Nevada, and one had moved to Arizona. 
And that was just an initial glimpse into what we're now seeing that the U.S. Census data has come out was really just a, a very small window into what is really hundreds of thousands of people uh, that are uh, moving uh, both back and forth across the country. And uh, we're certainly seeing people leaving certain parts of California, uh, moving to other parts of California, uh, but we're certainly seeing these trend lines in people moving in droves to uh, areas like uh, Cape uh, Coral, Fort Myers, Florida, or the North Port, Sarasota area of Florida, or uh, Salt Lake City in Provo in Utah. Uh, these are places where we're seeing uh, people moving to. And uh, the state of California, particularly the coastal communities, uh, are seeing reductions in population. You know, it's fascinating and yet troubling by all of this, Pete, is the notion that COVID-19 taught us that the ability to do more so-called telecommuting, to work from home, yep. uh, while yep. more and more businesses have said, yeah, okay, as COVID eases, we want you back in the office. But many have said, you know what, yeah, we're okay with this. In fact, you know, we're going to make it permanent. Three days a week, come into the office. Two days a week, work from home. And so as we're discovering ways in which technology makes this more practical. I I just have to wonder when the wake-up call comes to leadership in places like Sacramento, where they recognize, boy, there's not only a talent drain happening to California, but eventually it's going to lead to more of a company drain as corporations figure out, gee whiz, we can be as successful based in Silicon Valley as we can in a place like the Silicon Valley of of, uh, Dallas down in Austin. Head down that way, save ourselves a lot of money, save our employees a lot of money by way of lower cost of living, lower taxes, et cetera, et cetera. It it would seem to me that this would be a huge vulnerability for a state like California. And yet I look at what's coming out of Sacramento from a public policy standpoint, and I think to myself, do these people in Sacramento read the same newspapers that I do, or are they just living in a little bubble up there? Well, I think it's fair to say it's a bubble. You know, it is worth pointing out that in the top 15, what they call combined statistical areas, uh, the census calls these uh, metropolitan regions, the only one in California of the top 15 uh, CSAs that they call them that actually gained population between 2020 and 2021 was the Sacramento-Roseville area of California. Uh, It's the only region... Uh, in California, in the country, that gained population. And so it's it's likely that our legislators are seeing a slight uptick in population uh, where they work and think that that's somehow representative of what's going on around the state. But, of course, as we look to the major metropolitan areas, uh, we see the dramatic out-migration. And so, in particular, the second uh, region in the country number two, only behind the New York metropolitan area to lose population between 2020 and 2021. Number two is San Jose, San Francisco, and Oakland. And number three is the Los Angeles Long Beach region. And so um, it might be possible that they're just looking out their front door and seeing uh, increases in property and real estate prices and thinking the rest of the state is 
seeing similar trends, but certainly that is not the statewide picture. Well, and that certainly can can also create sort of a false economy. We see that here in the San Francisco yeah. Bay Area. You've got people leaving, and yet the housing costs keep going higher and higher and higher. And and a short-sighted view on that might say, well, clearly there's a high demand because the prices are so right. high. Therefore, it's just as attractive to people to come to the Bay Area, for example, as it ever was. Now, there are issues, of course, like drought and wildfires that to varying degrees are beyond our control. I mean, I think we have to admit that. And yet many of the things that I've spoken to in terms of why we've seen so much of an exodus, like public policy issues out of Sacramento, like taxation. These are issues that we can and should be controlling. Clearly, the wrong people are in power, which leads me to to pose the question, if at the core, so much of this is really directly attributable to issues related to poor public policy, maybe you could speak, Pete, to how places like the Pepperdine School of Public Policy can change all of that for young people that say, you know, I I recognize there are some problems in this state, and I'd like to learn how I can make a positive public difference so that we stop the brain drain from California as opposed to exacerbating it. Well, one of the things we talk about at Pepperdine and the School of Public Policy is many of the challenges facing the state of California are man-made challenges. Uh, the great things about California were made by God, and the difficult things have been presented by men and women, mostly in our state legislature. And what's so gratifying, as I look at our students that come here, many of them are Californians that want to be a part of reforming issues uh, that, frankly, are forcing these uh, major migrations out of the state. And obviously, when we talk about our education system, when we talk about cost of living, when we talk about cost of housing, when we we talk about uh, the high tax base for which we're not seeing delivery of public services that matches the tax uh, bases that we are that we have created here, uh, there are answers to that, and studying the other places where people are going to, studying the Phoenix-Scottsdale areas, studying what's going on in Salt Lake City and Provo or up in Boise or uh, out in Fayetteville, Sanford, another place in North Carolina that's grown, being able to compare and contrast these sets of public policy regimes is what we're about here. Uh, and again, it's gratifying to see that we do have students who are Californians that really want to be a part of turning things around. If you want to get more information about how your child or yourself, if you're interested in public policy, could benefit from an education and um, career guidance along those lines, then we invite you to find out more regarding the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Information available online at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Edu. Our thanks to Pete Peterson, the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy and senior fellow at the Davenport Institute at Pepperdine University. 546 from KFAX. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 